Hey gang. In May of 2021, we had the San Diego Historical Games Convention online. It was a great success. We had over 370 people filled with designers and uh, other interested parties that want to talk about games and their games and teach games. It was a wonderful success. As part of that convention, I interviewed six people, variety of personalities, um, and we did it all on video. So if you want to see those, those are available on the Harold Buchanan channel on YouTube. So search for that if you want to see uh, want to see what we look like while we're having these discussions. But I know some of you prefer the audio content, the podcast format. So I'm going to provide you with that here, and this is going to be an interview with Ananda Gupta. Now, I find Ananda to be a most interesting and thoughtful guy. And in this interview, Ananda talks about innovation in board games, and he also talks a little bit about what he does in his day job at Riot Games. So here is an interview with Ananda Gupta. Uh, hey, Ananda, how are you doing? How are you, Harold? I'm doing great. How's your con so far? What have you done that's interesting? Well, I uh, let's see. I, I came to uh, Severio Spagnoli's uh, historical presentation on uh, Vijaya Nagara, which was very interesting. Um, and I listened to the first two-thirds or so of uh, Ed Beach's Border Reavers presentation. I'd seen some much earlier prototypes of Border Reavers uh, in Maryland when I when it was still you know traveling was still happening and and uh, <clears throat> and and it, so it's nice to see uh, where it's come uh, and to hear about how he landed on you know that topic uh, after his sort of epic you know his 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 epic European historical games. Uh, although of course it's easy to forget Ed is you know also a very prolific Civil War game game designer. Right, um, right. Yeah. Not to, not to mention Civ five and six. Yeah. yeah, on the and on the on the digital on the digital frontier as well. Right. Um, he uh, let's see. I, I didn't have a chance to come yesterday because uh, to, to anything at the con yesterday because of my day job uh, flared up a bit. Uh, such as su such as such as what happens when you uh, when you work on a live game yes <laughs> that that yeah. gets that that uh, we live balance every every other week <laughs> <laughs> well you know anando that's one of the things i wanted to chat with you about was uh, talk a little bit if you don't mind about uh, your work at riot and um, and and what uh, what it's like to design a game in that environment versus board games which we spend a lot of time talking about yeah uh, so i've been Little little bit of background there. I've been working at Riot since 2015. In fact, uh, a week from today is my six-year Riotversary, as we call it there. Uh, <laughs> it's my fourth studio job in the video game industry, um, and uh, game design is different at every studio, but it is it is incredibly it, it is definitely and it is uh, Riot is no exception. Um, at Riot. The, the approach to game design is, is so cult, you know, it's, it's, it's so tailored to, uh, to League of Legends, uh, especially within the League of Legends organization, right? League of Legends has been out since 2009. Um, it's been very successful. Uh, you know, we have 
we have 100, you know, 100 million players uh, across the world. Um, and, and the game I work on, Teamfight Tactics, uh, which launched uh, just under two years ago, which is a more, you know, which is less about the sort of uh, multiplayer arena fight and more, it's more of a tactical experience. Um, Teamfight Tactics, you know, we're, we're doing great. We, you know, we have, you know, 13 million players. So we have a lot, you know, we have a lot of players to speak to. And uh, players, you know, they, they expect a lot from us, right? Um, and so we, in order to keep the game fresh and to keep the game moving forward uh, and balanced, it takes an enormous amount of collaborative game design, uh, which Riot is, is, I think, you know, we hire and, and, and structure very much towards. Um, uh, my team at my team at Riot. So I'm a, I, you know my title at Riot is is senior game design manager. Um, uh, that was you know I jumped onto the management track before that. It was principal game designer, and um, so right now you know I'm uh, well the design director of Teamfight Tactics is on vacation this week. So also this week I'm the design director of Teamfight Tactics, <laughs> and and so uh, yeah I you know I. Uh, this week, at least, I've you know I've led I've led a team of uh, twelve designers, uh, you know, and a bunch of engineers, a bunch of artists, and uh, we we have been working on. So I, I don't know, you know, Teamfight Tactics is a is a game where you uh, you build a team of champions uh, from League of Legends, you play, and then you face off against other people's teams uh, in in sort of real time resolution, but unlike uh, but but you don't actually control the fight. You just set up the armies, and then and then they the the, the games. You know, once once the combat starts, you're sitting back and watching. Um, and this this is, makes the game a lot more accessible for people uh, who don't have you know who don't, aren't interested like like me in the in in very twitch mechanics. Um, Not a dexterity test, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, and this this is actually this is something that I think. This this kind of relates back to board games a little bit and how innovation works, um, or or rather how how we discover new genres or you know new subgenres of games, right? So, um, it, a long time ago, you know, in the late '90s, uh, real-time strategy games were created in, uh, in in digital. There was Dune Two, there was Warcraft Orcs versus Humans, and so forth. Those were the early ones, right? Um, you know, you could even argue that uh, the Action Art of War by Broderbund, uh, you know, in in '86, I want to say, is the first real-time strategy game. I certainly make that argument when I'm at at, at conventions, uh, <laughs> because that's what the th sort of thing you argue about at conventions. Right. Um, and what's what? And so those games, those games are about you know, you build a base and you use the base to you know, you collect resources, build a base, use the base to build soldiers of varying types. In, in typically some kind of, of either soft or hard countering way against the uh, opposing armies. You know, so, oh, they're building squishy mages, so I'm going to build uh, squishy assassins who can jump in and one-shot the mages. But if the assassins have to fight anything tough, then they're dead. And so, you know, there, there's always there's always these trade-offs. You know, Age of Empires is another title that people are very familiar with, where it's like, oh, they have cavalry, well, I'll build pikes. Oh, they're now building pikes, I better build swordsmen, and so on and so forth. And so, um, and so... Uh, real-time strategy games demanded a lot of the player, right? Like you have to be constantly looking all over the map. You are controlling multiple units. When your army is fighting someone else, each unit is under your direct control, right? Those are, and you're also managing the economy. These are, this led to a very steep skill curve for real-time strategy games. And so, and real-time strategy games were very popular, but they kind of started to go into decline because they couldn't quite crack this, 
this this audience problem, right? And then someone, uh, as it turned out, a real time strategy game player, thought, you know, hey, what if what if I took everything that people? What if I took a real time strategy game? In fact, he did so literally and took Warcraft 3, which was moddable. And he made a Warcraft 3 mod called Defense of the Ancients, where it's like, this is just like Warcraft 3, except you only have to control one unit. How would that be? Wouldn't that be cool, right? Um, and so he figured out one axis on which to make the game more accessible. And then that became the multiplayer online battle arena genre, which of which League of Legends is a member, and which is now hundreds of times larger in terms of audience than real-time strategy games. Um, and so two years ago, when we, when a group of us, a group of us designers within Riot, uh, you know, a couple of senior folks were, were pitching, were, were, we saw the auto chess phenomenon, which was another, which was the, the, the game, the genre that eventually Teamfight Tactics would come to dominate. Um, we part of the pitch that we created um, uh, was Multiplayer battle arenas were created by somebody looking at real-time strategy games and saying, "What if I took a? What if I changed this one thing? Right? What if I? What if I? You know, what if you only had to control one unit instead of lots, and th thus make the, the the map focus problem easier, the control and micromanagement problem easier? <clears throat> what if we did something else? What if we said you still control all the units, but not all the time? Right? So we're going to have a planning phase, and we're going to have a battle phase, and you are going to uh, uh, and you, you only control the, the army during the planning phase. What happens then? The answer, as it turns out, is another new genre, right? The auto battle genre, right? Um, and I'm not going to pretend we were first to come to this. You know, there was, you know, there was some, there were some older games that took a stab at this. But, um, but uh, when when Auto Chess came out, it it was it was clear, at least you know, to us at Riot, that it's like, okay, we gotta. This is, a, this is a big opportunity. This is a potential new genre. This is also a genre that we have the potential to create the, the leader in, so we're going to do that. And I think um, board games, I, I think, so, so with board games, sometimes you see, sometimes you see dramatically innovative games, right? Like I, I'm thinking of, um, of Atlantic Chase recently, right? Which I think, I, I think counts as a dramatically innovative game. Sure, agreed. Um, right, where Jerry, Jerry White lays out his thesis about uh, I'm going to make a game that has that, that that is about a conflict that was entirely about hidden information and fog of war, and there will be no actual hidden information in the game. <laughs> right? right? There will be no there will be no player screens. There will be no GM. There will be no counters that you stack on top of other counters to hide what's under there that only one side can examine. There will be no blocks that face one way or the other. It's all out there, right? It's all right in front of you. Yet the game is full of fog of war. That's what Jerry tried to do. And, um, and, and yeah, and so I think I, I'm very grateful that there are dramatically innovative games, but I also think an important way of, of looking at games is what are the things that are stopping people from getting into this, right? And what is, what is, the, what is, what is one thing we can change that will then break that barrier, right? And will that, will that create either a new genre or a new subgenre? That's, that's that, kinda... So does that theory also assume that you get some momentum from what was already hot right but but slowed down and if you're looking to modify in that regard you're really capturing momentum in that innovation i don't think you have to, i don't think you have to assume that i think um i, I think that uh like real-time strategy games were good on their own merits right mm -hmm. um and uh it might very well have been that if if you know battle if, if multiplayer battle arena games were were 
kind of invented um, five years earlier, uh, they'd have been just as successful just five years earlier because the the fundamentals of the game fantasy are so solid. Um, so I don't I. I I, I do think it will certainly be easier to persuade your executives <laughs> to do it if, uh, you know, but that's, I mean, that's why so many of these come out of mods, right? Some of the, some of, so many of these come out of the player community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then we, you know, we keep an eye on those things and we, we do, we try various things to, to, uh, to, to get our own version of them. So in effect, you look for what's hot from the mods. And- uh, that's, I mean, given how successful mods have been, uh, that's, I think, you're, you're stupid not to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, agreed. Agreed. Right. Like Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, the first Battle Royale game was a mod. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that picked up tens of millions of players and then and then didn't scale well. And so others, and then and, and, and Epic saw the opportunity and, made, and, and, and pivoted Fortnite to, to mm-hmm. be that instead of what it was. Right. right. I, I, I interviewed for a position at Epic when Fortnite was still a, a a team zombie battler, right? Where you and your friends build a little town and defend it against waves of zombies. You know that was that was what Fortnite was. And then you know a year later they had completely redirected over to the um, to the uh, battle royale. Right. Mode. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know since you're talking about Fortnite, what is the, what is this relationship with the uh... With Apple, uh, how, how does that how does that impact the industry? And do you get, do you even see that? Uh, I have not been following that very closely. Mm-hmm. I know a number of my colleagues have. Um, I think I better I think I better keep my mouth shut about this. Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. No, it's my job to bring up the most controversial pot question possible <laughs> without delving deep into your personal life. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's just say we care a lot about about that case. We yes. care a lot about that case. Yes. Yeah. And no, it's, a, it's important and consumers care a lot about the case as well. This is one of the, this is one of the things where um, the more senior you get in an organization, the more uh, the cage you have to get a little bit about, about <laughs> what you say. I, I, you know, I've, I've gotten to a point where I, I can't uh, hold forth quite as much about, uh, about other companies. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm a little distressed to see the KG Ananda Gupta, but uh, I guess that's what we have to accept at this point. On that subject, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> what about uh, so you mentioned Atlantic Chase? What what else is what else do you feel like has been innovative? Uh, you know, and I think about you know, of course, uh, Washington's War. Well, we the people. I you know, Paths of Glory. Um, uh, your your game, of course, uh, Twilight Struggle. Um, I mean, did those make the mark for innovative uh, or do you think of it in a different way? Um, so I think, I think we've seen a lot of innovation in board games, obviously. I mean, spurred by competition, spurred by the accessibility of tools, uh, spurred by uh, opening, um, opening the gates, uh, you know, or, or, you know, spurred by things like the Zenobia Award, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think we've seen a lot of innovation uh, driven by these things. Um, I... And as I as I you know as I spent like the first ten minutes here talking, I don't think I don't think a game has to be dramatically innovative for us to praise it as innovative, right? Like Jerry went, <laughs> Jerry did something very very new, um, and it's you know he's I think in the designer notes he talks about how the idea for Atlantic Chase was born in two thousand one, so he's been working on it for a long time too. <laughs> the risk of innovating like that is that somebody's going to beat you to it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know I I was worried about that with Imperial Struggle. Um, <laughs> 
but I think um, it's I don't think I don't think you know designers designers have different attitudes toward the, towards innovation, and one of the one of my goals in board game design is always going to be to be innovative and surprising and delightful to the player, right? Like there are some there are some designer and there's nothing wrong with the opposite view, right? There's nothing wrong with hey look, I'm not bringing you know if somebody says look I'm going to design the best bulge game there is, right? There may have been a hundred bulge games before, but my view of the bulge is different or my view of the bulge is unique. And, you know, I'm going to use pretty conventional mechanics, but I'm going to make a different point about the bulge. Or I'm going to make it, you know, I'm going to emphasize differently or, or frankly, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, somebody like, I mean, so innovation can even be heavily driven just on the visual side, right? I mean, Rick Barber, rest in peace, right? He, you know, summer storm with, uh, you know, getting, getting, you know, showing Gettysburg, depicting Gettysburg as only he could, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And his, and his, his other games, um, where the, yeah, the, the innovation came on the, on, on, on the transportation side, right. On being transported, uh, to, to, to the, to another place and the designers, you know, to the designer's vision of that. I think, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, just topic choice can be innovative, but, to me, personally, those things will never be enough, right? It is not enough, right? It is, it is not enough to have, um, as a designer, I'll play those games all day, right? But as a designer, if I'm going to produce something, it's going to be, it's got to have like really innovative systems and mechanics. And I think we got there with Imperial Struggle, um, at least in the sense of trying to grapple with a, a huge design challenge, you know, 100 years and four wars. Uh, mm -hmm without, you know, without being world in flames. No, measuring competition in world and peace or in war and peace is I think uh, an interesting take and different. Um, yeah. So, so I think, uh, yeah, I think the, 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 the pay, you know, the, the, the way the different types of innovation that designers bring to their projects uh, is, is all highly personal, but uh, but for my own part, for my own part, like I'm, you know, Imperial struggle, the dice kind of withered away, right? Like the you know, early versions of, of Imperial struggle had dice and then there, I, you know, there was just a lot less rolling and then there was a lot, you know, less rolling and less rolling. And then, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're we, we didn't need dice anymore. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously diceless is not super innovative, right? You know, Sekigahara, right? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and many others, right? But, um, uh, but I think, I think, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's not like that, but it's 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 more about what are the systems that bring that bring that era to life in a way uh, that captures the emotional, political state of the of the player you're trying to sit, you're trying to to transport the uh, the actual players into, right? Um, I think. Let me. Um, and this is very, to me, very refreshing about board games and working on board games and why I continue to do it, uh, even though I spend my days working on a giant video game. Um, it's that players have, players really like things they understand and players you know there's 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 a lot of expectations that players build up as they engage with a game 
And and so innovation becomes kind of a downside at, at a certain point, right? Like because because players who have invested months or years in your game, that that, that knowledge is valuable, right? They, and they don't want it invalidated. And they're they're right not to want it invalidated, right? They don't want, you know, if they spend five years mastering your game, you know, and then you're like, oh hey, I'm gonna change the game so that all that mastery that you built up is 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 only half as valued, half you know, is only half as valuable at being competitive at the game or, right. you know, or, or at enjoying the at playing the game well by whatever standard you have, they'll be annoyed <laughs> and, yeah. and, and they're not wrong to be annoyed. And so, um, uh, and, and, you know, this, this actually kind of affects how, how Jason and I approach Twilight Struggle, right? Like there are, there are sometimes interpretations or, or readings of rules where we think, oh yeah, you know, that's actually might be kind of cleaner than what we've, what we've ruled in the past. Right. But we won't, we won't adopt it. Right, because because to do so would be to invalidate the knowledge of players who have already internalized the things that we've told them. Right, and right. And, and that cost of change is something that, uh, that 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 any designer has to keep in mind once the game is out. So you know, you were talking about innovation doesn't necessarily isn't always attractive. I I think about um, I'm going to interview Ed Beach. Uh, three o'clock and um, and you know he's the he's the proprietor well I don't know what you would call it right he's he's kind of the, the he has watch over the great battles of the American Civil War not great battles great campaigns of the great American campaigns, Civil yeah. War yep. and uh, you know that that particular design has a lot of uh you know, archaic feel to it, right? I mean, I think if we started that series today, uh, and we and we presented it that way, we would we would be not that excited. But there's such a large following, right? To your point, that he can't innovate. Um, yeah. Yep. As a caretaker, he can't innovate. Right. What the players want is novelty without innovation, which is yes. not. Those are not the same thing, right? right. Um, I think. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, a you know, an innovation will take hold if it's sufficiently compelling. An innovation might take hold regardless mm -hmm. um, of, of 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 sort of existing player sentiment. But boy, it's an uphill climb, right? And so, um, yeah, and so novel, right? So novelty without innovation looks like um, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna port this system over to a new campaign, right? We're gonna, you know, or we're gonna port this system over to. Um, well, that's pretty much it, actually, right? Yeah. Like that's that's yes. kind of what novelty without innovation in that context looks like, right? right. And, uh, I, you know, I think Coin has a whiff of this, right? Yeah. To be honest, yeah. I, I'm not saying Coin titles haven't been innovative because uh, yeah. clearly they have, right? Uh, you know, with Gandhi, going, you know, having the nonviolent protest stuff mm -hmm. going on, and, um, uh, and then like there's the solo, there's the so, there's the solo features that have been coming out, um, but. I think part of the part of the appeal, like if you, you know, if you had a coin game where you know you had an action called rally, but it just worked completely differently from every other coin game that called you know had an action mm -hmm. called rally, players would be like, "Come on, what are we doing here?" Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, and uh, uh, and you know maybe that's kind of a cheap example, right? But but I think, um, you know, if you had if you had a coin game, well, I'm not sure. Uh, it's, it's certainly the case when we now that we're at number ten, right, or eleven or twelve. Yeah, but but yeah. But, but, but Andy and Abyss uh, clearly was innovative, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. You know, right. It built on, it built on labyrinth, um, you know, and, and so like has clear ancestors, but you know, that doesn't mean it's not innovative. And Inibus was incredibly innovative. Right. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I don't know what the, I don't know what the engagement patterns look like, but uh, it wouldn't surprise, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the topic of Andy and Abyss kind of made it fly under the radar for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, it was a while ago, right? It was 2000. When did it come out? 2005 now? No, later than that. Yeah, it's been. Let's find out. Andy and Abyss. 10 years ago. Uh, Andy and Abyss came out in 2012. Okay, so yeah. yeah. Um, right, so. Uh, I think, yeah, it took it. I think people who played it saw the compellingness of the system, or at least the promise of the system, right? And the promise of topic breadth that it brought. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if if there was some adoption, you know, so, some adoption uh, friction there. Right. You know, it's funny. It also drives some that those innovations also drive. You know, the first games in those series, even Twilight Struggle, drives some interesting. Um, um, discord in the wargamer community, right? Um, yeah, uh, it does. Um, I mean, right, there's the classic is it a wargame or not? You know, that's mm -hmm. you know, that's uh, that, that always comes up. I, you know, I'm, I'm not fully sure what a wargame is, so right. I, uh, I, I, I take I, I take no position, but um, uh, but uh, I think. The fact that people care enough to argue about that is 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 very gratifying, certainly. Um, and I think I, you know, the yeah, I, I, right. That's yeah, right. That's just, that's just definitional stuff. And you know, Jason gets very cranky about that, right? Like Jason, you know, J Jason Jason tried to coin, you know, Jason tried, I think, some somewhat successfully to coin that Atlanticist label, right? The idea of a game that's halfway between a Euro game and a and an Ameritrash or a you know or a, or, or an American style uh, uh, game, whether that's whether that's like a more beer and pretzels game like uh, Fortress America or a more hardcore game. Um, right. But uh, there's an interesting question in the chat, which is um, uh, before and during the design process. Uh, so, so Michael Head asks uh, bef before and during the design process for Imperial Struggle, were you, were you ever conscious of, or did you and Jason ever have any discussions about the press pressures of trying to design a successful follow-up to such, such a successful product that Twilight Struggle began? The answer is yes. Uh, so Jason and I didn't talk about it that much, but um, at least, so speaking for only for myself, I felt enormous pressure. Uh, it, it took, or, or rather, I should say, it took enormous emotional energy for me to continually persuade myself that Twilight Struggle is not the bar, right? Twilight Struggle can't be the bar uh, <laughs> because so much went right for Twilight Struggle that it would just be unreasonable. Like if I if I waited until I was completely sure that Imperial Struggle was better than Twilight Struggle, then I would never it never would have come out, right? It just right. never would have. Um, what was what ended up being enough for me was when play, some playtesters came back saying I kind of like this one better, right? Mm -hmm. That was that and that ended up being enough. Right. And um, I'm not I'm not saying we wouldn't have shipped it if no one had said that, right? But the fact that some people looked at it and like, for whatever reason, you know, lack of dice, topic, 
uh, greater, you know, even greater scope and sweep, right? The war and peace stuff. Um, I think, you know, it was it was very reassuring to hear that. Okay, yeah, this it feels like this is a step forward, right? This you have taken you have taken you you've 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 done something new here. That is an evolution, right? Will everyone think the resulting evolution was strictly better? No, that's okay. Um, so I think, uh, but yes, yes, it's it, like the fear of the fear of being, um, the the fear of not living up to Twilight Struggle's legacy <laughs> uh, was definitely a factor. Um, and it, yeah, it's an, yeah, it was an enormous, it was definitely a barrier, like a, uh, some friction to me. At the same time, you left a lot of Twilight Struggle behind, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's where that innovation point comes in, right? Like, I was, I was not interested in doing a game that was a close sibling to Twilight Struggle in in mechanics. I do think that Imperial Struggle is a close sibling to Twilight Struggle thematically, mm -hmm. right? Like, it is a, another epic struggle between two great powers of the world who have very ambitious goals for the world right like those are those are the, the that that theme unites the two and that's why they're both called struggle right um and you know so to, so to michael's second question have have we seen the last of the struggle series of games i don't know maybe um i i think uh i think that my next game will definitely be smaller in, you know, it'll have a smaller sweep, but I would like it to be epic in some way, right? Even if it's not like a global map, right? Even if it's not the powers with, with, a, with the type of reach that allows them to just reach out across the globe, right? Like that, maybe it's not that, but I would like it to be about something really important in the same way, and, you know, an important contest between two very opposed uh antagonists right or you know to one another right very, very opposed causes um and if you know that that may be enough for it to be called struggle can you talk about anything you're working on now not at all yeah so um there are a couple of things uh the, there there are there are a few potential follow-up bits to imperial struggle that um that are kind of kicking around between me and jason um one of the advantages of Imperial Struggle's small event deck is that if we want to add some, it can be kind of slotted in there more easily. Uh, and so, you know, unlike unlike Twilight Struggle, where the deck shuffle timing matters a lot, it just matters a lot less in Imperial Struggle. So, we can add we can add more historical events to the game um, as players have become more familiar with the game, mm -hmm. um, and, and and thus not defeat our goal of of creating a game that that players don't have to learn a huge deck of cards to to, to be to be great at um and then uh another thing that i've been interested in so one of the things one of the systems that we cut from imperial struggle that 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 might come back as sort of a bonus expansion is is war tiles that that care more about board position right or have special abilities right so uh like all the all the plus three war tiles in testing had uh special abilities um, you know, so Marlboro would be, you know, Marlboro's like base, he would, he would, he went, he, he is base value two, but becomes plus five um, if certain conditions are met. Um, so he can be very, very important on the battlefield, gives him, give, makes him more Marlboro, you know. Um, but I think, but the problem with that was it was just kind of too much rules complexity, you know, and it led to kind of a, 
a bad play experience. Uh, and so th thinking of a slicker and better way to do that without, you know, whenever you draw a special tile, you're like, oh boy, let me look up what this does. Um, and thus A, signal to your opponent that you've drawn a special tile <laughs> and, and B, um, add more, you know, like add more unexpected complexity, you know, on a, on a tile, on a tile pull. Um, I think, uh, so that, you know, coming up, coming up with something like that. Um, and then frankly, uh, there's also the possibility of, of new investment tiles, right? Like we can have wackier investment tiles, um, that have, you know, either, you know, may, maybe some of them have, have multiple minor actions. Maybe some of them, uh, have a single type of action, right? So it's like, this is economic points that you must spend in India, but it's, it's, you know, it's a major action worth six, right? Or, um, uh, there's, uh, one, one type of investment tile that we, that we, you know, that, that, that we've kicked around a little bit, or at least that I've, that, that I've come up with is, uh, an investment tile that allows instant removal of conflict markers. Um, right. So, uh, there's there's just a bunch of different options uh, on investment tiles that I that I want I want to I want to do deal with uh, the 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 interesting the problem is playtesting bandwidth right like playtesting takes time and attention and um and so it's just always kind of time consuming uh, to get to stand up another playtesting effort um, so I think uh, we'll see how that goes though we'll see how that goes um, and then on the new game front. Um, there's, uh, I'm working on a game about the French revolution, uh, which, uh, you know, spoiler for, uh, again, from Michael's question, um, was, you know, would it be a struggle game? The answer is I don't know yet, but I do think it qualifies as the type of, of epic conflict between utterly different visions of the world, <laughs> uh, and, and, and mattered a lot, right? Mattered a lot. You know, it's it's interesting because it's it's kind of it's kind of fashionable to say, well, the French Revolution started with a king and ended with an emperor, right? And uh, you know, they were they didn't actually become a republic again for you know until until 1846, uh, and and. You know, so so what was it all for, right? Like, did it really matter much in the end, right? And the answer is the French Revolution mattered an enormous amount, right? There are laws and customs and procedures in France that are date from the revolution area, from from the first republic today, right? Just like there are in the United States, and and there's so much there there's so much uh, to be said, like. The, the number, the sheer number of reforms made at every level local, right? Local, state, and federal, basically, right? Uh, the, the number and variety and breadth of reforms that were made um, in the French Revolution, uh, it's, 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 it's jaw-dropping uh, how many changes were made and how many new laws were passed and how many, and how many, how many, how many elements of, of French uh, law and, and, and policy were updated. And... Um, and it's just, right, it's easy to lose track of that when it's like, yeah, but they still end up with an emperor, right? And yeah, of course, that's true, but uh, that's really eliding the impact that, that happened. And um, the, and so, uh, and, and, and moreover, just like on the civil, and this happened on the civil side, right? Um, this happened on the civil side, 
and it happened very fast. It, like th these changes happened in two or three or four years. And, th and they generated a momentum, an avalanche, right? Because people saw how fast things could change and that m impelled them to move even faster. And, and so when you look at, when you look at a society that wants reform and, you know, like the French, you know, for a hundred years, the French revolution was the model of, boy, this is what you have to do if you want to get things to happen fast. Right. And it also happened on the military side, right. It took the, it took the first Republic, what, four years to, to achieve the territorial gains that the Valois Kings had been chasing for centuries. Right. Like if you went, if you, if you, if you interviewed all of the Valois Kings and said, Hey, uh, you know, what's your wish list? What are your foreign policy ambitions? What do you know? What do you want? And they, and, and took that list pretty much the first Republic got the, all of that within four years, right? They just, they just, they just swept the table. Right. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so like that, that kind of pace, that dynamic pace of change um, is just an enormously interesting and, it's it's an enormously interesting and inspiring and and kind of terrifying, kind of terrifying, uh, uh, view right? or or, or uh, prospect, right? Because because well, of course we also know what happened with the French Revolution, with the bloodshed uh, and the and the uh, illiberalism that occurred. Um, you know, there's an old game anyway. Yeah. So, so like, that's why I think it, it, it might be, it, it might get the struggle tag. I don't know what, I, I have no idea what the title is going to be, but it might be, uh, it, it might get the struggle tag. Um, and I do think that if the game fails, if the, like uh, the game will not ship unless the Republican player, uh, has that feeling, <laughs> has that feeling of cascade, right? Has that feeling of, of. I have virtually unlimited potential, and the only thing that is stopping me from remaking this society is is myself, right? Is 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 fear, right? That's the only thing, right? And the anti-Republican player, and spoiler, it's going to be a two-player game, and the two sides are the Republican and the anti-Republican player. Um, like uh, the anti-Republican player is just is like this should be. Um, this should be unthinkable for that player, <laughs> right? Like the unthinkability of what is happening should be where that player is emotionally, <laughs> right? Like, um, and so, and so, yeah, there's just a bunch of mechanics and a bunch of, of there's a, a like in, in some ways, I think it has to be kind of like the anti-coin, <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. coin games, in coin games, you know, they're, they're characterized by the incrementalism of what you do. Um, and then you have very specific, you know, in, in Fire in the Lake, you have pivotal events and, and Liberty or Death, you have the, uh, the campaign cards, I think they're called the, or, um, brilliant strokes, brilliant strokes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, sorry. Uh, and so, um, yeah, brilliant strokes, uh, that, that let you kind of period, you know, rarely in special, at special moments violate that incrementalism. But like new players often voice frustration, at least in my experience when teaching coin games, new players often voice a little bit of frustration of like, we've been playing for an hour and the board hasn't really, doesn't seem to have changed that much, right? Like the board doesn't seem to, like there's more pieces and pieces have been move, removed and stuff. And like these tracks have moved, um, but it doesn't feel like a lot has happened. And then you have to kind of point out, well, actually those things matter a lot, right? Those, the things that you're pointing out 
that seem like little changes are actually very important. Um, and I think this game has to be the opposite of that, right? This game has to be, um, has to be like uh, the board and the, the state and the, and the, and the player's frame of mind is just, is just what, whatever happened last year feels like a hundred years ago. <laughs> right. Um, it, it could have been a hundred years cause that's the pace of change we're at. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I don't, I don't want to argue with you about the impact of the French revolution because it clearly was tremendous on France and the world <clears throat> and certainly put Kings around Europe, you know, on, on notice. Right. <clears throat> but is, is it, is it also interesting that we're multiple constitutions into the, into, uh, into the country of France, right? The U S same constitution generally, um, for 200 plus years, but in France that hasn't taken the same traction. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a cynic, uh, so of course a cynic would argue the U S doesn't actually have the same constitution, right? Supreme court precedent and decisions have, have de facto amended the constitution. That's, that's, that's what, that's what some people would argue. Mm -hmm. uh, so, sometimes I'm sympathetic to that view. Sometimes I'm not. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, whereas, uh, but yeah, like, I mean, the French, the French had three, I think three constitutions during the revolutionary period. Right. right. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, you know, it's easy to think, well, yeah, this is just a very different, like they just had different outcomes. Well, I don't know. I guess what I would what I would say is, when you look at the reasons why the French Constitution, like like the first Constitution, the one that was drafted, where um, they formally created two classes of citizen, right? There's there's a um, uh, and and they have like the concept of civil rights and political rights, right? And everyone has civil rights, right? So everyone has the core civil rights, but only if you meet certain conditions do you have political rights. Um, and specifically the right to vote, right? But but there were other political rights that you did not have unless you were a member of this other class. And uh, the 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 Jacobins, uh, and I mean I use that term in the broad sense at the beginning of the revolution, right? So the very just the generally large Republican faction was like, we are not, we we cannot, like it doesn't matter what else this constitution does, right? It doesn't matter that that, that the king becomes you know, the, the king is, is, is much reduced. It doesn't matter that, uh, that there's the franchise. It doesn't matter that we have this structure or, you know, that we have this, this, this layered structure of representation. No, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't even matter if women can vote, right? Like all of that is great, but we cannot sign off on a constitution that creates two classes of citizen. That is not acceptable. And, um, and, and that was just, and so like that, that was just something that, that the Republican faction was just unwilling to, 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 to uh, compromise on. And when you look at the American situation where we were able to compromise on a constitution, despite having slavery, <laughs> right. <laughs> and having a bunch of the States saying we shouldn't have slavery and a bunch of the States saying we must have slavery. Um, it, it, it's easy to say, well, yeah, you know, the Americans got it done and the French didn't, <laughs> but I think, I think, um, uh, I think the, the differences in regionalism and the different, you know, the different regional elements go at work in the two countries, um, the sheer sizes involved, 
I think I think those all were factors into why the very first constitution. Oh, and frankly, the king, right? The fact that the French had a king um, who had a lot of expectations and all the supporters who had a lot of expectations about what that person's role would be, right? Whereas America had just fought a war to, get, to not have a king. Right. <laughs> and right. so, and so with, um, and, and so, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, one of the passages uh, one of the one of the books I read for for uh, while researching this game, and I I'm not nearly done with the book reading part uh, for this, but uh, Jeremy Popkins' uh, uh, A New World Begins. Um, he quotes he quotes another historian who says, you know, if if Louis uh, if Louis had had if Louis had had a little more vision and a little less well, a little more vision and a lot less uh, susceptibility, right? He could have emerged from the French, from the French Revolution, not only alive, and not only still king, <laughs> but with his powers increased, right? Not because he would have remained an absolute ruler; he would definitely would not have, but because the the country that he was leading. <laughs> would have been so much stronger, right? So much stronger and, um, and, and wealthier, right? Like wealthier and stronger and, uh, and more dynamic, right? Like he would have, been, he would have emerged as the head of state of, of that country. <laughs> and so even if he doesn't get to do literally whatever he wants, which of course he found out he doesn't get to do anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he would have come out, he, he would have been, um, you know, he probably would have preferred that outcome. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, Painless, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, and so I think uh, the fact that, they, you know, right, the fact that France already had a king and a nobility and a tax structure that had centuries worth of of privilege and tradition and, um, and, and frankly, nonsense built into it, mm-hmm. um, those were all things that were going to hinder a constitutional process. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, right? I mean, one of the arguments for, for, for why the U S constitution is, is resilient. Uh, you know, if you, if you, if you accept the word resilient there is that there were, there were 13 colonies that didn't like each other. Right. I mean, they, they fought together, but they hated each other. You know, you didn't travel colony to colony. You made fun of everybody around you, all the colonies around you. And so, you know, the fact that uh, that you had such a, a diverse group and, and, you know, not diverse in the European colonial term, but but d- diverse because they just they were different. They did different things. They liked different things. They had different priorities. Um, and in, and so from that comes a constitution that, you know, measures things a lot of different ways. And uh, right. And, and maybe, you know, maybe survived. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. But, um, you know, despite the fact that there were, you know, royals and not royals uh, in France, there's certainly, you know, a little bit more homogeneity, I think, right? Yeah, there was. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think that's true. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's true. And, and yet, you know, one, one could also argue that France... France had a, um, a tradition of liberty that while very distinct from the Anglo-American and, and later like purely American uh, conception of it was in some ways deeper rooted. And so 
um, I, I'm remembering. Uh, so France, France, of course, uh, had slavery. You know, was a participant in slavery, just like the other European countries. But unlike other European countries, France did not have slavery on its home soil. Mm -hmm. uh, it had slavery only outside of its home soil, um, and this was because in the I think the 14th century, um, uh, Louis the seventh, eighth, I forget his regnal number, but um, Louis made a, a royal proclamation, which was any slave who sets foot in France is thereby freed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there was a, um, and this, th there was a, uh, uh, an anecdote I read about where uh, a slave ship, um, a, a slave ship uh, racked by storms pulled into, I want to say Nantes, Nantes Harbor. And um, the captain ordered the slaves off the ship onto the pier so that the ship could be kind of drained and repaired. Um, and so they do. And then the people of the town go, okay, great. Uh, you know, so do you, any of you want, where do you guys want to stay? Can I, you know, can I offer you a meal? You know, like, do you have any money? You know, basically trying to do deals with them. And the crew, the crew is like, what are you doing? These are slaves. And they're like, yeah, they're not anymore. Right. And the captain's like, what do you mean? This cargo's worth blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and the town's like, yeah, tough. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, free, you freed them all when you left, when you let them off the ship. Right. <laughs> and, now, right. and, and, and so the, the captain ordered the crew to, of course, take the slaves back by force. And the townspeople uh, responded with force. Uh, mm. And uh, because that, that tradition was 400 years old. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and and uh and and right it's like that's not how it works in france is right. there's no such thing as there's literally no such thing as a slave in france right. um but there is such thing as a slave outside of france in a french territory or colony um actually uh, as a follow-up to this story um reading about the revolutionary specifically really does uh cure one of the sort of respect for napoleon that one might have um, even outside of his political activity, you know, even even outside of his wrecking, you know, of, of his betraying the republic and and turning it into a monarchy. Leaving that aside, the fact that he, that the the first republic abolished slavery and Napoleon reinstated slavery right. in the colonies, um, right? Like that by itself uh, is is a <laughs> you know what it's hard to imagine a greater enemy of liberty <laughs> right. than someone right. who undoes abolition of slavery. Um, yeah, and, no doubt. And, 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 you know, to, to bring that around full circle to some of the other themes in the con uh, in the Zenobia ward, uh, I have a mentee that, that is uh, doing the, the Haitian revolution, uh, which is right. which, slave revolt. Right. And, yep. and just such an interesting game and, and topic um, that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Looking, looking forward to that and looking forward to this one. So I appreciate that. Um, are there any good games on the French Revolution? I mean, I, Wallace has one, but it's a puzzle more than it's a... Yeah, right. It's study. more of an abstract. It's more of an abstract kind of area control election game. That's right. Yes. Um, I think uh, the, one, the one that I'm especially inspired by is an old game by As Your Wish Editions. Have we talked about this before? I don't think so. Called uh, La Révolution Française. I think it came out in it came out in the early mid '90s. I, it was one of the very first games I ever played over email, um, uh, with you know after college. And uh, the game is 
the game was was created by a group of French academics. Uh, they were all first time game designers, and 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 the, they were French academics. And um, it is exactly what you would expect if you had four French academics designing a game about the French Revolution with no game design experience. Um, it's the the game is is a glorious, ambitious, unplayable mess. Um, and it's a six player game. Uh, has yeah has six has six. Uh, they call them currents, right? They they refuse even to call them factions because to them the word faction implies a greater level of cohesion <laughs> than mm -hmm. um, than than the uh, than 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 existed uh, it, it, at this time um, in this context. And I play. I, I remember I played as the Mari Sards, um, who are a um, a sort of moderate faction. Um, and the game is full of, is full of great ideas, right? It's got this really novel victory system. Um, it's got, uh, it's got a really novel victory system at hand. It, 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 it has systems for a lot of different things, as you might expect, uh, <laughs> uh, has systems for a lot of different things that nonetheless kind of, they really bring out the character of the era, um, but but ultimately the game is very hard to play. It's it's a it's a game of constantly looking up tables and uh, forgetting modifiers and and so on and so forth. And um, and so I think um, and I, when I looked at this, and this this kind of gets back to the innovation point, like hmm, what are some of the barriers to entry I can reduce here, right? And you know, getting it down to two players is an interesting idea, right? Like, how do I, how do you know, how do I get this down to two players? How how do we get this to be a system where you don't have to read about the capabilities of every possible government type to know what you should be voting for? Um, you know, the game also had other degenerate problems like uh, the Fuyant faction, which starts out as the most as the most powerful faction. Uh, in the in the in the legislative regime, right? So uh, during the during the um, uh, basically the era of that of that very first constitution, uh, the one that the Jacobins uh, rejected, uh, the Fuyants start out in a great position, and their job is to basically make make sure nothing changes, right? They want the game to end in that in in the legislative era. They want you know that represents the survival of that. That, re that, that represents the survival of that constitution and probably the transition of France into a constitutional monarchy. That's really hard, obviously, when you have five other players who are not super interested in that. Um, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but, um, uh, but also, like, if, the, if, if what happens historically and the fiance kind of get purged out around turn two or turn three, the Fionn player is kind of, well, what do I do for the rest of this game? Right? Like the Fionn player is kind of done. He's just done. And, um, and that's why, um, that's why another reason I went down to two players, because two players in this context means that um, the, the Fionn faction can start out as a Republican faction, right? Right. As, as sort of a soft Republican faction. And then the Republican player and the anti-Republican player's actions will determine what happens to them. And maybe maybe some of the fiance will, will go over to the Royalists, you know, which who are, who are definitely anti-Republican, right? Maybe maybe some of them will stick with the uh, 
we'll we'll stick with the Republican side. Maybe maybe they'll just kind of die, dissolve and die out. You know, there's just a bunch of things that can happen, but it doesn't matter. Like you don't have a play, you don't have a player who is stuck for playing, you know, half the game in a situation he can't possibly win. Um, and uh, so yes, yeah, so so that game, like that game, um, is 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 a fascinating game to me and a source of great inspiration but it's also very much like here here is what i don't want to do <laughs> it's also a cautionary tale um uh so i think and, and that's you know I, i'm not i'm not super familiar with um other french revolution games obviously there are games about napoleon's early campaigns and so forth um but there are not other french revolution games that i have been uh deeply engaged with uh interested if the audience has uh has any that i've that, that i sh has any titles i should play right now let us let us know we'll get we'll get them to uh to ananda and get them up uh, to speed you got you you've got to figure that there's some floating around europe that are just aren't in our on our radar right yeah yeah i we're increasingly starting to see for example screenshots of different games from japan and china you know like like the like J japanese and chinese historical games mm-hmm and boy, some of those look really interesting and I want to play them. Yes. Um, I, uh, I'm super, uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to, uh, some of, some of the Chinese games in particular, mm -hmm. you know, about the Warring Kingdoms period, about, about the Tang Dynasty. I would love to see, um, so like uh, there was a, there was a Britannia style game called China, the Middle Kingdom that Decision put out a while ago, um, which I found it was very long, like Britannia games. It was, you know, but it was it it, it, it was what, what it said on the tin, right? Like it's it's this is Britannia and China, right? The, the, and um, I, I do think that historically it had some issues and it was perhaps too ambitious. But uh, boy, I would love to see like another treatment of that. You know, Britannia. I don't know. I, I so my, Michael Michael Hetton in the chat also asked. You know, what types of games do I, do I most enjoy playing, digital or tabletop? Um, I mean, I play a huge variety of games, but one of the things that I like to do is play games uh, and see how, you know, see how they could potentially be updated or improved or otherwise or stolen from, you know, um, <laughs> I think, um, and, uh, you know, I have the new Britannia, the one that was just the Kickstarter uh, and it has like, it has a two player version. I'm looking forward to playing that um, because I think, I think if somebody can figure out that sweep of history thing, um, but in a modern sense, that doesn't require quite so much uh, dice throwing and quite so many windows of action, right? Like, oh, I attack. Okay. Uh, I roll my dice. You roll your dice. Great. Okay. Uh, are you leaving? No? Okay. I'm not leaving. Great. So already we've had, you know, three passes, you know, three passes of the stick, right? right. Uh, and then, okay, let's roll dice again. Okay. This is what happened. Are you leaving? No. Am I leaving? Uh, you know. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's funny. You mentioned playing games on email. Yeah. When you play games on email, you really start to appreciate that passing the stick, don't you? Uh, yeah, and, and, and games that minimize it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to lie. There were certain design decisions that made an Imperial Struggle that, um, uh, that were made to minimize the passing of the stick. Right. Um, when I was working on Legends of Runeterra, which is, the, which is Riot's uh, uh, digital uh, card game, um, we would often lament that there's no digital equivalent of the nod. Right. Yes, so, yes. like, you're playing. You're if you're playing Magic the Gathering, and you it's turn one, and you play a land. Uh, you know, 
and then you, you nod at your opponent and that's all they need to know to, to realize you're done. Right. Yeah, um, true. right. Uh, and, and there's, you know, in, in a digital game, you have to push a button or click, click you know, click something. And, right. and that actually is a, a UX challenge, uh, in, yeah. in capturing, if you want to have a very interleaved back and forth system, then or, or set of mechanics then then that's important right this is this is one of the reasons why for example hearthstone which is a very popular uh uh digital card game from blizzard that's this is why hearthstone is very much a i set up my board i do things and then i just kind of but i you know i don't have any i never have any decisions to make during my opponent's turn mm. right i never make decisions during my opponent's turn right, right. um right hearthstone is basically a game of alternating puzzle setups mm. um and, you know, when we made it Legends of Runeterra, we wanted to introduce the concept of into a digital card game of I make decisions during my opponent's turn uh, in certain cases. And uh, that turned out to be really hard from, an, yeah. from a UX point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, just uh, uh, squad leader, combat commander would be such great games online and, uh, you know, could reach so many people, but you can't do it because the opportunity fire just, uh, you know, makes it impossible. Right, right. Do you want to upfire in this hex? Yeah. <laughs> okay. How about now? Okay. How about now? Okay. How about now? Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Give me, give me an affirmation. Yes or no. Yes yeah. or no. Yes or no. Yeah. We we experiment with a lot of different solutions in that space in Legends of Ruterra, and yeah, it's hard. It's real yeah. hard to de- it's hard to deliver that. Yeah, and that we, we, you know certainly not without changing the game dramatically. Yeah. Uh, which is possible, right? I mean, I, that if that's the alternative, I would be okay with it, but. Um, Nanda, great to talk to you, man. Thanks for taking the time and thanks for coming to the convention. And you're 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 active. I think you've got a game coming up here against uh, our very own Edgar. Um, yeah, three o'clock Imperial struggle. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's anxious, so be kind. Well, I think uh, Edgar Edgar and I talked about this. I think we're going to make it a you know we're, it's going to be more of a chat game. Like we're yeah. we're we're not going to be. We're not going to be going going for the jugular in this game. Right. No, that's be... good. And I, I'm joking. He's going to love it. You guys will have a have a blast. So, uh, thanks again for coming and, and taking the time to talk. Thanks for having me, Harold. As always. Well, that's it for an interview with Ananda Gupta. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Remember, the video is also available on my Harold Buchanan channel on YouTube. Search for it, like it, subscribe, all that stuff. Uh, as for me, well, now that California is open, I think I'm headed to the beach and I'm going to do a little SoCal distancing.